I'm Shereen Patrick, and this is Starting Out. This is today's podcast where I take the personal route with the movers and shakers in the marketing industry to find out their stories, how they became the leaders they are today, and what's their special power that makes their craft so remarkable. Change is the only constant. That's probably the most fitting description for the advertising world. And that's what excites Harris Diamond. Harris is the CEO of McCann World Group, who has taken the IPG network this year to new heights since he came on board in 2012. McCann, of course, is one of the industry's storied shops, but it's been a long time since the days of the Coca-Cola jingle. Harris is in charge of leading the agency through a period of great change. But while it's scary, to him, it's cause for optimism. This is a great business. This is a great industry. This is a great place because we get to chart the future. I mean, if you think about this industry, what we've gone through, we are people who adapt. We people who take advantage of technology all through the premise of we're trying to figure out how best to communicate to people and how best to get people to be influenced by our ideas, to like a product, buy a product, like a brand. You know, we've gone from paper uh, to radio to television, to digital. Um, And at the same time, we've kept all those things. We still do things on paper. We still do things on radio. We still do things, you know, on television. And that's been a challenge, but that's been fun. This is a fascinating and fun business. It certainly is. Harris has done a lot of work before he got into advertising, though. He worked in politics and in insurance, but it was his first job selling peanuts at Yankee Stadium that he recalls most vividly. I was selling peanuts in the only place that counts, which is Yankee Stadium. And how old were you? I was about 14 and a half when I started. And I sold, I was able to do a night game when I was 16. So I sold until I was 17 years old. Ball games at the end of the day were probably the most fascinating things. And I felt like I was one of the professionals. I was there to basically entertain the fans and generate and show my sports capabilities. They actually informed me I wasn't there for any of those reasons. I was actually there to try to make money, sell peanuts, and get my 13.5% commission on every 25-cent bag that I sold. And so I learned a pretty important lesson at that, which was work was hard, uh, walking up those steps in the grandstands. I graduated and was promoted to the mezzanine level, never quite made it down to the field level, but it was a great job to have as a kid. Harris also happened to spend some time in the village working for his dad. My father was a... Uh, you know, sort of post-World War II vet, um, and he built a small business, a dry cleaning store in the city, and uh, I used to work there on Saturdays. We used to argue incessantly about the proper way to sweep a floor. I do not recommend anybody work for their fathers. It leaves battle scars on both sides. It was a family job. It was one that I really didn't enjoy doing. I used to go in Saturday afternoons, take the train into the city. We lived in Brooklyn, and it was an hour-long train ride. My friends would continue to bowl. I had to leave the league early, so they always let me bowl my last couple of frames. So I would bowl the 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th if I was lucky enough to get that strike um, in a row. Everybody in the league knew I had to go to work, um, but it was good. I got to spend time with my you know, father, which was not bad. And you know, working in Greenwich Village was sort of an interesting thing to do in those days. And then after college, he got his first professional job at Prudential Insurance Company. That's where his management training really began. So what was your first professional job? 
So my first job, I worked for a company, Prudential Insurance Company. But I went to a meeting where they used to do management training programs in those days, uh, which all college trainees, my first title and my first job at Prudential was I was a college trainee. In fact, my first there, day there, I was sort of petrified because when they gave me my business card, I was afraid that they didn't understand I'd already gone to college and that had blown the, the initial interview process and had somehow indicated that I still had those four years ahead of me. I later found out you hold that position for about six months, but it was a tough three hours when I was trying to figure out what to say because I didn't want to give up the paycheck. But they did Maybe do a lot of training. Maybe yeah, just say nothing. Let them pay you was, and figure it out. Well, that's, to be candid, that's sort of what I decided. <laughs> I found out later during the day, I sort of whispered to somebody, I'm a college trainee. Like, yeah, you're only there for six months. It's okay. You know, you, if you do a good job, you can get out of that from five months. I said, okay, they know I went to college. What was this management training about? They did do used to do management training. And one of the management training programs, I'll never forget, with the senior vice president, was uh, he had a toy monkey on his shoulder. And I got called up, and the toy monkey was on his shoulder. And I'm sorry, this is not a metaphor. This is not a metaphor. Okay, it so was I, truly I couldn't tell for a second. It was truly a toy monkey. And um, he asked me a question. And in front of the audience, the monkey left him when he asked me the question, and he placed it on my shoulder. And the question was, you know, we got this meeting coming up and, you know, I'm trying to figure out the agenda or it was something like that. And so I did what, you know, sort of bright young guys on the make want to do, which is I wanted to ask them really small questions. So I said, like, you know, who? And slowly but surely, the moderator started moving the monkey from my shoulder. The more questions I asked him, back to his shoulder. And what the message was is, it all depends on where you want the monkey to be. And in this case, what they were telling me was, you control that, which is you can make the decision that when you get work, you're going to do it for other people, and then the monkey's on your shoulder. Or you can make sure that when you give work, the work stays with the people who you've given it to, and then the monkey stays on their shoulder. And so that message was work-life balance, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. After this break, Harris will talk about how work-life balance works for him and how the monkey continued to be an important lesson in his life. But right now, a quick break to tell you about Digiday Plus. Digiday Plus is our premium membership product. Join our community to get a first-hand look at how digital is transforming the world of media. You'll get Digiday Magazine, exclusive research, and invites to exclusive member-only events. And it's only $3.95 a year. Please sign up at digiday.com. And for you, our podcast listener, we have a discount offer to get 25% off your subscription, enter the code starting out at checkout. Now back to the episode. And you still remember this story. So tell me about turning off and on because you have a very busy job. So my wife once said, if anybody's looking at me to give the right answer in that area, they're looking at the wrong place. For me, work has always been something I enjoyed. I've been fortunate. This is a career that basically is one that I think both uses my skills, but equally important gives me tremendous joy. I like what we do. I like the industry. I like the business. I generally like the work, like the product. So this has been a, a, a good place for me to spend my years. And at the end of the day, when you look at work-life balance, what you're really looking for is that time when you can get away, feel that you can basically reboot. That's how I look at it. And, you know, to a certain extent, I find that in my walks. I find that in my weekends when I get away. You know, in a world where we're all on 24-7, in a world where emails are always able to reach you, where texts come through at all hours, and where there's no problem at all in seeking and gaining information, 
It's hard to disconnect. I have always found it, however, valuable to disconnect. People know that most of the time I read everything I receive pretty real, you know, pretty close to when I receive it, but I don't respond. You know, there are a lot of people who say, respond the second you get it, clears off your desk. I find responding the second I get it doesn't give me the time to think through why I get it. But if it's a time when I'm trying to take some time off, I also find that that immediately revs me up. So the reality is I'll respond when I think it makes better sense for me. And so I find work-life balance in actually managing my own time rather than allowing everybody else to manage my time for me. When I decide that I need that time, make sure the monkey doesn't come back to me because I have great people who work with me and great people who are responsible for the work and great people who understand how to get the work done. And so don't get involved overly in trying to manage that process. They got the monkey, they're going to keep the monkey, and the monkey is theirs. Um, tell me a little bit about life after Prudential. Um, some of the diff- obviously, you did many, many different things, but um, tell me a little about some of the jobs there, what that experience was like. Well, Prudential was a great experience for me. I mean, I got to learn a lot. I stayed too long. They also agreed I stayed too long. But at the end of the day, when I decided to leave, I decided to leave to go to law school, which basically meant I had no idea what I really wanted to do. Um, because- why? Why? Why law school? Because if you really don't know what you want to do, law school is always a good answer to that existential question. I applied to law school yeah, once. Exactly. It's, it's most of us. Um, but at the time, I was also getting involved in local politics here in New York City. And so I started to run campaigns here in New York City. And what happened during those years is when I left law, uh, Prudential, I actually ended up running uh, political campaigns here in the city, state, and then eventually all around the country and eventually around the globe. I ran him for uh, Elizabeth Holtzman, who became district attorney. I ended up joining her office and became her confidential assistant for a couple of years. I worked on Senator Moynihan's campaign through our firm. But I also worked in Louisiana uh, for the governor there, Texas. And then we ended up, and I worked on the campaign in Israel and in other countries around the globe. How, how, why politics? Well, democratic politics had always interested me. It was a time when the country was basically going through tremendous post-Vietnam change. It was also a time when the country was going through serious economic change, Rust Belt, high unemployment, end of the Reagan era. And uh, politics was actually sort of something I was very interested in. And running campaigns was something that I fell into. And it became something that became more than just a passion. It became a job that I truly enjoyed and a lifestyle that I liked. And so over time... I went from running campaigns on my own to joining a bunch of people and joined a firm called Sawyer Miller. And we ended up running campaigns all around the globe. And then eventually we decided to get into the corporate world. So, and that's when the law school thing had died by now. No, I also did law school during those years. Oh, you were doing both. I did law school during the years after Liz had run and became district attorney. Hmm. Um, I finished law school while I was working in the DA's office. Um, when you first became, for example, a manager, I mean, I often find that there is a need to want to control. There's, especially in the early days of figuring all of that out. Um, do you remember kind of feeling ever that you wanted to be always in control, that you couldn't actually turn off, you shouldn't actually? Um, this idea that these heady days just mean that you're just going to work and work and work, and and this romanticization of that kind of approach. Was that ever a factor in the way you were leading something? No, I mean, I was always, listen, I was always lucky. To a certain extent, I, after I left Prudential, I basically um, always was in a position, whether because I founded the firm, founded the business, or worked in the business, 
where I was able to direct what I was doing. It's a great advantage. And, you know, it's got upsides and downsides, obviously. You know, you're always concerned about whether or not you can pay the mortgage. But at the same time, you get tremendous uptimes and you get to decide for yourself what you're basically focusing on to build your business. And so I found over time the most important thing, and it does cover a little bit from the monkey story, was find great people who could do work either as good as I could do or better. You know, most people always have a hard time believing that there are people who will do it as good as they can because people are prideful of the work they do. So then you, what you have to decide is if they're not going to do it as good as you, will they do it as 95% as good as you? Which is sort of a way of saying they really do it better, but, you know, you can sort of make believe that they don't. Find those people. And if you can find those people, you can build a great business. If you don't find those people, then the reality is the monkey's on your shoulder and you're always going to run a small business and you're always going to have a small role. Because the truth of the matter is, in today's world, you need a lot of people to partner with and a lot of people to work with and a lot of people to make things actually take place. So I'm pretty focused on finding people who can hold that monkey. Tell me a little bit about... We're, we're killing the monkey, by the way. Killing, we're killing the monkey. The monkey's yeah. about to leave. The, the monkey has to leave. <laughs> At the time, kind of what was your... What was the way you saw your career? What, what were you hoping to do? I never thought about a career. I mean, it sounds funny to say that in today's world, but I never thought about a career. You know, I want to remember years ago somebody saying to me what their five-year plan was, and I walked out of the room thinking, oh, God, they got a five-year plan. I'm really screwed um, because I never really thought long-term like that. It's a different world today. You know, back then, you basically thought about, you know, especially if you didn't have kids and if you didn't have a significant other and if you didn't have a spouse, you know, you thought about what were you doing that night? I mean, you know, maybe the weekend. And career was just sort of a secondary issue. I won't say I just went with the flow. I obviously had things I enjoyed doing. But as I found the things that I enjoyed doing, I just enjoyed doing them. And so over those years, there were decision points. Uh, when I left Prudential, decided to go to law school. When I ran campaigns, I sort of fell into that, to be frank. Um, I spent uh, almost four years in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office as Liz's confidential assistant, as I said, but then went back to running campaigns uh, for a couple of years and then eventually led the firm into the corporate business. But each one of those was a moment in time. None of those was somebody who was looking and saying, what's my five-year plan? And I've always believed that that is the better way to build a career. In other words, find a job you like, run it as long as you possibly can, and then when you get bored or when it's no longer working out for you, look for the next thing. Now, I'm not saying not to be ambitious and not to be focused, but I think sometimes we can take an ambition and focus and basically suppress the instinct that says, this really is paying me well, but it's not what I like doing. This is leading me someplace, but not where I want to end up. I actually think people do better when they actually find the thing they love and run it as long as they can. And when they no longer love it, be open to trying something else. I've had a variety of different business careers in a funny way. And I can honestly look back at all of them and say I probably stayed too long in each, but I actually enjoyed each to the extent that I stayed in them. Do you have a five-year plan now? No. Still no. Still no. <laughs> still, still no. Never. You know, I still, like most people, probably still think, you know, college is four years and everything should be basically, you know, <laughs> figure out where you are in your fourth year. Do you remember the, I mean, you, you were obviously a leader already. You were already managing a lot of people. Do you, do you remember at what point sort of you started thinking of yourself differently, thinking of yourself beyond my career, my growth, and sort of, you mentioned people, bringing people along with you, promoting people, getting, becoming in some ways people's mentors 
in a, do you remember the first time you kind of figured that out or a memory you have of that time? No, not really. I mean, I think because it was a business that was founded with a group of partners and people who were basically focused on sort of a common goal of trying to build an entity. I think it was just by definition, we grew. And as we grew, we took on more responsibilities. Well, first of all, I was a Democratic political consultant at the end of the Reagan era. And as you might recall, we weren't really winning a lot in the United States. Um, so some of it might have been self-survival. <laughs> but at the uh, I mean, there the, were other ways you could pivot. <laughs> there were other ways to <laughs> pivot. The other but, side of the but, aisle. I, I wasn't going in that direction. Um, but at the end of the day, what I did decide was the corporate world was becoming interesting. I mean, the truth of the matter is I did find American politics to a certain extent. Um, having worked overseas where issues were very substantive and very significant, the American politics were basically really about a divide that was sort of narrow at the time. The corporate world was interesting. Corporations were trying to redefine themselves. As I said, it was both, you know, post the Reagan era, post the sort of Rust Belt era, new technologies were being created. Um, Corporations were redefining how they were working with communities, how they were working with their employees. And, you know, if you learned anything in politics, you learned that the art of communication, the art of, of trying to get people to be able to follow, trying to get people to understand where you were leading, trying to get people to basically commit, all of that was important for corporate leaders. And so it became a good time to basically begin to think through how corporations had to redefine themselves. And from that, you know, that Sawyer Miller firm became Bozell Sawyer Miller Group. And then from that became BSMG. And from that it became Weber Shanwick. But over the years, that was to me a fascinating place to make a career. And so for those, you know, sort of, I guess it was uh, 19 years. It was uh, some of the most enjoyable work I've done. We never forgot that at the end of the day, the reason we were being paid was for the work we were producing. So we focused externally a lot more than we did internally. And we also rode an interesting wave that was taking place in the late 1990s. It was this time when, as I said, corporations were learning to communicate and the importance of communication to all the different constituency groups. But as the business grew, the reality is, you know, the partners I had grew with me. And so whether it was because we were making acquisitions or because we were organically growing, you know, I still remember we came from 13 people and eventually were a couple of thousand. Um, But at the end of the day, and many of those folks still work in Weber Shanwick, uh, at the end of the day, what drove us was sort of a shared vision about where we saw the firm and where we saw the firm basically fitting in the marketplace. And it is a you know, a pretty aggressive marketplace, competitive marketplace, but we saw an opportunity. But we also saw a business that we could be proud of, the people who were working in it, the opportunity we gave those people, the opportunity those people gave us, um, the chance to build something special. And I think to a large extent, that was a bonding experience for all of us. What kind of boss are you? Well, you know, I leave others to decide what type of boss I am. What would they say? Well, my children would say not a funny one. Um, I actually think I have a good sense of humor, but apparently after a staff meeting today, I think the staff would agree with my kids. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I think people would probably say, you know, focused on the clients. I hope that's what they would say. How have you kind of figured out who then you 
want to be, what kind of leader you want to be. Not necessarily a day-to-day manager, but when you're thinking about, and obviously a leader. You that, mean other than I, everything I learned, I learned from Star Trek? <laughs> everything you learned, you learned from Star Trek. Well, Captain Kirk is my model. It's everybody's model. Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you want to you know, try new things, um, but you also want to know where you're going. And I do think that that's what people are looking for. People who are willing to try new things and people who also have a sense of where they want to bring the business. So when does the job get harder? I don't know that the job gets harder. I think the job is just always interesting. This has always been an industry that has required you to adapt to change. Technological change, regulatory change, public policy change, consumers' ideas about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Um, I don't think that makes it harder. I actually think that's what makes us love it. What is the hardest part of your day? I think the hardest part of the, anybody's day who serves in this industry is, you know, recognizing that we are in a very competitive environment where sometimes we have to make very difficult decisions because of that. Technology changes. Something that we did for 20 years means that a whole bunch of people who worked in that arena are fundamentally now we have to figure out, do we have opportunity for them? Um, client walks out the door. It has an impact on whether or not we can still have the same people working for us tomorrow that we had today. Those are the worst decisions you have to make in this business, which is the bis- decisions that affect other people who through no fault of their own. Sometimes you've got to make tough decisions about basically making sure that the business has the ability not just to survive but to thrive, notwithstanding the, you know, the difficult moments that it just went through. Those are always the most difficult things. How do you handle that? How do you handle having to potentially lay off people, having to change people's lives, again, through no fault of their own, you're the one who has to often do it. Well, you know, hopefully, we've been in a growth industry for many, many years, so obviously, you hope by being able to find other opportunities for them, but sometimes you just can't. There is no good way to handle that. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is you do the best for the people that you can, and you come to grips with hopefully... A true belief that by making the decision you're making, you're doing it for the greater good of the most of the people who still will remain behind. But anybody who tells you these are decisions that, you know, they can somehow, there's no way of, of recognizing these as anything other than you have hurt people. Um, there's no good way of handling that. If you had to write a book about your life, what would you call it? (laughs) I don't think anybody would read it. So I'm not quite sure what I would call it. Um, You know, the book that no one would read. Don't read this book. Don't read this book. I mean, I I wouldn't even say don't read this book. I'd actually say read this book, but I'd probably say read this book in big giant print. You know, I think... It's not a bad idea. I'm surprised nobody's done that before. (laughs) Read this book. I'm in marketing. Um, But at at the end of the day... It's been fascinating. That was Harris Diamond, CEO of McCann Worldwide. And that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sengal. If you like our show, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And while you're there, please rate us and leave a review. I'm Shereen Patrick. We'll see you next week.